This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. You're listening to the Knowledge at Wharton podcast. I'm Steve Gulyomi, Editorial Director for Knowledge at Wharton. Retail in the U.S. is undergoing a major repositioning. Among the most recent victims are Nine West, Toys R Us, and Claire's. A new book by Wharton marketing professor Barbara Kahn explains how retailers can weather these radical changes. The book is titled The Shopping Revolution, How Successful Retailers Win Customers in an Era of Endless Disruption. Barbara is joining us today in the studio. Thanks for joining us, Barbara. It's a pleasure to be here. Having read this book, it could easily be titled The Amazon Revolution. What is it that Amazon knew about consumers that, that others didn't? The interesting thing about Amazon is that they have, as they call it, a maniacal focus on the consumer. And if you look at retailers in the past, the customer was not part of the proposition. Amazon understood the customer experience really matters. Walmart's also a really huge player here. In what ways does Walmart need to copy Amazon, and in what ways should it maybe follow its own path? Well, Walmart disrupted the retail industry in the mid-'90s. I actually wrote a book about it then. It was called The Grocery Revolution. And what Walmart did was an operationally excellent strategy at the time. They evened out demand. They got rid of high-low pricing. They went to everyday low pricing. And they understood that customers want low price. And they really attacked it from an operational point of view. But what Amazon showed was that it's not just about price, although clearly price matters to to a certain segment of consumers, but it's also about convenience, frictionless, make it easy. And Walmart hadn't done that before. So in response to the competition or the competitive expectations that Amazon has imposed on the industry, Walmart has to make their world more frictionless. And they have to embrace online shopping and e-commerce in a way that they hadn't previously. Well, so in the in the book, you share a framework for helping to make sense of all these changes in retail that you talked about. What are some of the key elements of the framework, and how can that help retailers? Yeah, that that's what I think is really good about the book, is that I try to describe some of the different strategies, and I did a lot of research, and I've been studying the industry for a while, so there is kind of a description of some of the different research. But it's important to lay it on a framework and to think about the strategic implications, and that's what I think the value of the book is. So it's a very simple framework. It's deceptively simple, but it has really strong implications. And so what I start with is two basic principles. One, the principle of customer value. And in the retail world, it means that customers want to buy something they value from someone they trust. So that forms the columns of my matrix, product experience and customer experience. And the second principle is the principle of differential advantage. They want to buy from retailers who do it better than anybody else. And so how can a retailer do it better? They can either give more pleasure or take away pain. And so that provides the the rows. And so therefore, in my matrix, I have a two by two. On the top row, which is benefits, pleasure, the product quadrant would be things like brand or luxury or design or technology or something that's really super cool about a product that you're willing to pay a premium price or even a luxury price. And the customer experience pleasure is the high-touch customer experience, the importance of in-store, a touch and feel, uh, a a retailer like Sephora or Italy, which provides incredible state-of-the-art customer experience in the store. That's what 
back quadrant would be. On the second row, it's takeaway pain. And on one, it's the pain of the product is price. So Walmart is an example of takeaway pain and offer low price, everyday low price. So Walmart, Costco, TJ Maxx would be in that quadrant. And then the takeaway, the pain from the customer experience is what Amazon did really differently. And they made it convenient. They made it frictionless. And in Amazon's case, their differential advantage there is collecting a lot of customer data so they can constantly simplify and personalize and customize the customer experience to make it easier and easier for the customer. Now, that's the matrix. That's how I can define things. But the strategic implications of the matrix are something else. Well, you you noted in the book that it used to be good enough to just be good at one of those things, but now you need to be good at more than one of those things, right? Yeah. Is that part of the implications? Yeah, and that's something that I kind of discovered when I was trying to map these different strategies on the matrix because in a lot of um, marketing strategy frameworks, it's be the best at something and good enough at everything else. That's kind of a, a, a rubric that we've used strategically. But when I was looking at what's happening in retail, it, it, it's an industry that is being disrupted. It's very, very hyper-competitive now. And if you can't make it, you're really going to go out of business, literally. And so what I found is in, and when I looked at the winning strategies, each one of the winning retailers were really the best at something, but they leveraged that leadership advantage to be the best at something else too. And I call that the two-quadrant strategy. So you kind of have to be the best at two things and good enough at everything else. But if you're in a competitive industry, if everybody's trying to be the best at something, what that does is ratchet up customer expectations. And so even when you're trying to be the best at something – you know, even if just good enough at something, those expectations are constantly going up. And you can see it in what Amazon's done to the industry. Say you're competing on on price or something, but Amazon is making, you know, two-hour delivery or, or these kinds of things, customers' expectations. So just being good enough in that quadrant of frictionless or convenience is getting harder and harder to do, let alone being the best the way Amazon is. So customer expectations are really driving a lot of these changes. Right. Well, it's the competitives. You know, for a long time, just think about it. Five years ago, you'd walk to your grocery store and get groceries. You didn't think that much of it. Now you demand that it's delivered to you and it's got to be delivered to you at this time. Yeah. And so the reason why those customer expectations are higher is because retailers are delivering to these new values and customers get used to it and then they want everybody to do it. Right. If you could pick just one big trend that retailers need to focus on now, what would it be? Well, I do think understanding the importance of customer experience is really important. So understanding that now that customers have been catered to, they expect things to be convenient. They expect Expect a retailer to have an online presence. You know, there are some retailers who still don't have an online presence, and I wonder what will happen to them. Things like Trader Joe's. Now, that is a retailer that people just love. You know, it's a real niche retailer, but they don't have much of an online presence. And I wonder what will happen going forward if they don't actually rectify that situation. Well, at least my next question. I mean, a lot of legacy retailers are suffering because they have stores and systems that were modern, say, like 10 or 20 years ago. But they seem sort of archaic today, right? If a retailer is way behind now, how can they catch up? 
Well, I don't know. A lot of the ones that have fallen behind just really haven't caught up. So a couple things are driving that. One of them, as I already alluded to, is Amazon alone has just raised people's expectations on e-commerce. But you also see a difference in consumers. So the millennials, a lot has been written about, but now people are focusing on Generation Z. And these are what people are calling digitally native customers, consumers. They are ones who believe they grew up with a phone in their hand, essentially. And they shop through their phone. They expect online. And if you don't have a seamless shopping experience that goes across physical stores, mobile, and online, these people are just going to go somewhere else. It just doesn't make sense for them. So if your systems, a lot of the legacy retailers, they understand it. I'm not saying they're naive and they don't get the importance of e-commerce. But they have legacy systems that are hard to integrate. And the online and offline have been so separate that for some of these retailers, it's very hard to get up to speed. That gives an advantage to the digitally native retailers who came in after expectations. So they came in with an online presence, um, and then they started opening stores. It was much easier for them to integrate the shopping experience than the other way around. So, I mean, all eyes tend to be on the Amazons, the Walmarts, the big examples. But what are some of the other retailers that are sort of flying under the radar that are doing things well, in your opinion? Well, a lot of attention is being paid to these what are called digitally native vertical brands. Um, Of course, our favorite here at Wharton is the Warby Parker. Warby Parker is one of the big ones that started and really got the occasion that got the equation right. And what what digitally native vertical brands have in common is first an amazing brand that really caters to a customer segment and really cares about what the customers want. So they offer something of value. The other thing that characterizes these digitally native vertical brands is that they are vertical, which means that they go direct to the end user and they can do that because they start out online and they don't need to go through physical retailers necessarily. That eliminates layers and in many cases offers a good price. So Warby Parker, as well as Bonobos or Casper or some of the other digitally native vertical brands offer really cool customer experience brand, but they offer it at a lower price. And so they compete very effectively because they have that two quadrant leadership strategy. Oh, So just to touch on a recent retail headline, um, H&M is a retailer that became successful riding this wave of fast fashion. But now it's sitting on billions in unsold inventory. Uh, what, in your opinion, went wrong, and, and what lessons are there for other retailers? Yeah, I mean, you compare H&M to Zara. Zara is also a fast fashion retailer, which is, I think of that as a vertical brand also. It eliminated the layers, too, and offers a good brand at a, at a low price. So H&M and Zara both did that. Zara's a little higher price point than H&M, but still much cheaper than luxury, you know, and it's a fast fashion that's not as expensive as luxury. What Zara does, which I don't think H&M did as well, was it had a better prediction of inventory of fashion taste. So they were really right on top of fashion and they managed their inventory well. H&M had a lot of excess inventory and once you start doing that, you're not, you're not really on top of what customers want. Then you get a lot of costs that have to be managed. Well, just to turn to luxury for a moment since you brought it up, um, a lot of luxury retailers are retooling to compete in an even more sort of fickle fashion world. what, is, what does luxury mean now? Does it mean something different than it did even 10 years ago, would you say? Yeah, I mean, again, going back to this uh, this epiphany that I had about two quadrant, luxury used to be good enough to be just 
fantastic brand, you know, fantastic. And they didn't have to compete on price, and they actually weren't convenient. Part of the luxury paradox is that it shouldn't be easy to get. So that makes it more valuable. That's like crazy, but that is what (laughs) what happens. But now with people's expectation of online convenience, even luxury brands, which went kicking and screaming into this notion of e-commerce because it really is against the idea of exclusivity and scarcity, Mm -hmm. recognize even in the luxury world, e-commerce is starting to be a factor in whether consumers will buy from you or not. So you're seeing new platforms starting up like Net-A-Porter or Farfetch, which are e-commerce platforms trying to cater to the luxury market. And Outside of the U.S., Alibaba is doing that also. Now, most of the luxury companies or brands do not want to sell on Amazon because they don't think that Amazon will give them enough power over their own brand because Amazon's a very ruthless retailer. But some of the other platforms are ways for these luxury brands to reach their consumers, protect their brand mystique, and still offer some convenience of e-commerce. Right. Well, this new era of retail also has a lot of implications for real estate. Uh, How will developers have to change their strategy to accommodate this new world? Yeah, you're seeing a lot of interesting changes in physical store. First of all, a lot of the B&C malls, the less attractive malls have been closing down. And then even when you see the A malls open up, it's not the same A malls as as in the past. A good example is there Century City is one of the new malls that opened up in L.A. It's a gorgeous mall. I loved it. Um, Now, what they have there is Italy is there, which is, you know, one of the anchors is Italy. That's a food place, you know. They have tons of restaurants. They have gyms. They have a department store. Nordstrom is there. But the statistics that I've seen is in these malls that a lot more of the purchases used to be made in the department stores, and that's going way down. It's much more experiential. Um, People like to hang out at the malls. They eat. They go to the movies. They go to gym. There's still some retail there, but it's a different mix of retail. Right. Well, given given the trends that you see in looking 10 years down the road, what will the retail experience be like for the consumer? Yeah, well, you know, that's hard to call for sure. There's other trends, you know, talking about that real estate and that kind of gives... The other thing that's happening is demographically, a lot of people are moving into the city. Mm -hmm. And so there you're seeing smaller footprint stores. I think a lot of the retail physical stores are making themselves smaller because they're not carrying as much inventory. Mm -hmm. So some of the retail are becoming showrooms. So you can go there to touch and feel the product, then you order it online and it's delivered within two hours. That suggests the store itself doesn't have to have the inventory. I think the importance of this touch and feel and really valuable customer experience is going to matter. It's not just about food. A lot of people think customer experience is offer a cup of coffee. It's obviously more than that, but it has to be a way where you really understand what the customers want to do in the store. The other thing that a lot of the retailers are fooling around with, and it's very interesting to think about, is healthcare, because that's also very high touch. So you're moving into CVSs and Walgreens doing a lot more primary care, that kind of stuff in their stores, Mm -hmm. the pharmacy which is an experiential thing when you think about it. You do have to, you know, you have to see somebody to, you know, have them touch you to figure out how, what's wrong with you and things like that or give you a shot or something right. like that. So anything that's kind of experiential might be in these retail stores, not just pure shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you'll see these smaller stores, more experiential, defined very broadly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, if the industry continues to be this competitive, then I think you'll see customer expectations constantly being ratcheted up and retailers will really have to keep improving and innovating. And what about the fate of some of these big box stores? Do you think we'll see fewer of those as they begin to close more frequently? Well, we already have. I mean, a lot of the big box 
the, a lot of the closings are big box retailers. So Circuit City, um, Borders, Toys R Us, those were the category, they used to be called category killers. Mm-hmm. And what they offered was huge assortment at low price. But online can totally defeat that. So that's just not a winning proposition anymore. Um, so yeah, those are the ones that you're seeing closing first. The question is, can department stores exist? And department stores, uh, you know, they're, they're trying. Macy's has got a lot of strategies on the table and they really understand the threat and they're trying to catch up. Time will tell. If they can make it. What are some of the strategies that, for instance, Macy's is doing? Well, uh, Macy's is trying to be fa- fashion forward again. They're trying to do this much better omni-channel, trying to you know make sure they're more convenient to consumers. And they have done two things. They One, they're trying to be more fashion forward and more of an omni-channel experience. They also have followed the other successful retailers are like TJ Maxx, mm. um, and so which are these off-price fashionista. They offer very cool brands in a treasure hunt environment, but at a low price. And so most of the department stores have opened up another an off-price um, channel. And so they're kind of competing in both ways. Now, whether or not they can pull that off, I don't know. Well, we, so we spent the last 20 minutes talking about all the changes happening in retail, but what, what are the core tenets of retail that, in your opinion, will never change? Well, I mean, that was the irony when I developed this, this matrix. Is like, duh, this is marketing 101. You know, give customers what they want and do it better than the competition. And what that means is customer expectations change. It might mean something different. But really being customer focused, I think, will always be in style. Well, thank you so much. Sure. Uh, given the pace of the change in, or change in retail, um, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again really soon. Yeah. I have to say, I cannot catch up with keeping up with everything that happens every single day. Well, thanks again. Really changing a lot. Thank you. And and thanks for listening, everyone. If you like what you heard, you can visit us online at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. And you can also find all of our podcasts on iTunes. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 